with Native people in particular, the only thing that can make up for land is land and sovereignty. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. to Shaking As It Turns from the second album by the folk band Lula Wiles. A Beniki native, Molly Obamsawin sings harmony vocals and plays upright bass on the song. She's a musician and an activist. She studied at the Berklee College of Music and she's a Dartmouth alum. We could spend an entire episode discussing her folk music, but today we'll focus on her activism. Molly, let's start with terminology. I grew up in Oklahoma, and I use the terms Native American and Indian. Indigenous, though, seems to be the preferred term today. Do you use the terms more or less interchangeably? Um, so I think that it really varies person to person. You know, it's kind of an individual choice. But I do have some feelings about um, all of them. and. Indigenous is a really broad term, you know, that can apply to Indigenous people all over the world. And so there's a lot of benefits to using that. But I know that a lot of uh, Native people from Turtle Island, from the Western Hemisphere, prefer to be um, referred to as their specific tribes, you know, so I would be a Beneke, Beneke Nation. And Native American is very... Um, I think it's trying to do justice to um, sort of the the inaccuracy of Indian, you know, because that term is just sort of lazy to use because it's wrong. You know, there's a, a nation of India that is not here. Um, and um, but Native Americans sort of misunderstands the relationship that our people have with um, America itself. You know, that we fought um, against citizenship for a long time because we didn't want to be assimilated into America. So sort of to refer to us as Native American or American Indian um, kind of misses the point there in that we're not, um, our peoples were not originally, and many of us today still are not trying to be part of America. Um, we predate America, and that's sort of the foundation of that relationship. So indigenous, perhaps? Yeah, or First Nations, I know, is used in Canada, which is where my tribe is um, federally recognized. But I think just Native, honestly, is um, the most generally applicable here and respectful if you don't know the specific tribe. Could you explain where your tribe originated, plus some of its history? The Abenaki Nation actually wasn't originally its own tribe. Um, the word Abenaki is a mispronunciation and mistranslation of Wabanaki, which is, you know, you think of the Wabanaki tribes of Maine. Um, and um, so the English sort of could use that W sound at the beginning of the word, but the French who um, colonized a lot of the 
what are now known as Beneki people don't have that won't sound uh, in their language, really. They don't really use it at the beginning of words ever. Um, like the most sort of similar sound that they can make is um, in like the letter eight, wheat, wheat. But uh, yeah, so it, it wasn't natural for them. So they just sort of softened the beginning of the word to the ah sound of Beneki. Um, so that being said, um, the Abenaki people now, you know, in the context of colonialism, um, it is a real tribe and its own entity. Um, and so we originated from all over, um, Northern New England and, um, basically between to be general, um, the Kennebec river in Western Maine and the, uh, and Lake Champlain and the Hudson river that comes out of it in Vermont, upstate New York. And um, my nation is now federally recognized in Canada, like I said, but there are Abenaki people that um, live south of the border as well. Does your name have particular meaning in the indigenous community? So Maliakit is my full first name, and she was a um, Pequawket midwife um, in the late 1600s. She was really well-known. Um, advocate for our land and our peoples, and she traveled a lot um, helping people. She was a medicine person, um, and so she is a really important figure to us in our history. Um, and Obamsoin um, has a lot of different interpretations of the meaning, and they all sort of line up, I guess, conceptually, if you're thinking about it in a indigenous framework. But um, there are some interpretations um, are that it means um, firekeeper, and some are sort of lean more toward um, um, basically the, the Obamsoans were roving uh, archers. So they would like ar- be um, shooting arrows and defending the village, basically the village defenders. Um, but those are just different um, dialect interpretations of the same word, if that makes sense. As a native, how have you been treated in this country? And do you have any stories that you'd like to share? Mm. Um, yeah, I'd rather not go too deep into it just because I'm not a huge fan of trauma porn, (laughs) but, um, there's, um, obviously something I've written about a lot in my articles is just the erasure of, um, native people in general, and especially in the Northeast, you know, people think that we don't exist. Um, and they're very convinced that they're right about that, you know, um, particularly white people and settler descendants, um, and, but also just across the board, you know, the li- liberal media. I've seen, I was just looking today at um, one of those maps that pop up uh, now and again online. And it's like, you know, the trajectory of native land dispossession um, over the years. Maybe you've seen those. And it's sort of this like shrinking the image of like the whatever color the native land is just shrinking over time. Right. And um, they yes. always start with the East Coast entirely like not having any native land in it. You know, they start at um, the beginning of America and the East Coast is, you know, supposedly all already white land, which is bogus. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that just sort of speaks to like how common the erasure of East Coast natives is. You began to study native history during your second year at Dartmouth, which is a college that was originally founded to educate students native to the Abenaki land on which its campus is located. Was mm-hmm. there a particular reason you started to become more interested in history? Yeah, so Dartmouth started as Moore's Indian School, and it actually started in um, 
in Connecticut, I think in Lebanon, Connecticut, and then it moved to Abenaki land just to sort of reframe that history. You know, when it started as when it became Dartmouth College is when it um, moved to Abenaki territory. And um, obviously, there's a long history of um, folks from Odenak, which is my reservation, um, going there. And, um, but yeah, in, when I started Dartmouth, I, um, was sort of reluctant to dig into the native studies classes, mostly because I was like, I'm already native. Why do I need to learn about being native? You know, but, um, I'm really glad that I did end up taking, um, native studies classes. And it was largely because of, um, what was going on at Standing Rock at that time. Um, and I got really um, inspired. And um, there were some really amazing classes being offered at that time about Indigenous nationalism and Indigenous uh, liberation movements. So that's when I sort of dug into it. So you come from a political family. You're one of six kids and your parents met in a Vermont courtroom. They were <laughs> advocating for tribal rights. Mm-hmm. And one case ruling they followed determined that a Beneke sovereignty had been, quote, extinguished by the increasing weight of history, which is the notion that over time, you can overturn a Native nation's right to exist. And you said that's nonsense. Yeah. So one of the great classes I took at Dartmouth was federal Indian law with um, one of like the biggest experts in the nation, Bruce Dutu. Um, and... Um, we, you know, we studied sort of the, all of the major cases in the federal Indian law canon and all of the precedents and um, basically the ruling that um, Native title can be extinguished merely by the passage of time is just like completely against all precedents, legal precedents set by the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, for the last 300 years. So basically you have to, in order to dispossess native people, it has to be expressly and unambiguously um, decided and legislated by the Congress. That's the only way that you can dispossess native people of their land. Any ambiguity has to side on the, um, on the side of natives. Uh, So that sort of just like closes the case on any kind of ruling about, you know, extinguished by the weight of history, which means nothing, you know, that means that like, so nothing happened, the leases still stand, you know, or the title or whatever the deed, um, whatever the context is, but just because white people settled there and, you know, now there's a city there or whatnot, um, that native people, uh, don't have the right to that land anymore. It is an argument that, I'm really surprised didn't get um, taken back up by the Supreme Court uh, or the Court of Appeals because it, um, yeah, it's just so obviously against precedent. And um, we saw that in Oklahoma recently, right? That that um, major ruling um, for the Muskogee Creek Nation um, that should have, you know, overturned even the Vermont ruling from the '90s. That was huge. Three million acres. Yeah. 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 On land where I grew up, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. The thing about um, the Oklahoma case is that, you know, that land was um, proven to be uh, still a reservation, still of the of the five tribes in Oklahoma. And um, that is a really huge deal, obviously, um, for, for precedence and affirming um, tribal sovereignty 
and yeah, the, the canon of federal Indian law as it stands. Um, but also what the EPA did to my understanding is that right after, um, that ruling was made, they, they, um, passed a law or some kind of legislation about, um, that the EPA gets to set the standards, um, for, um, fracking and extractive industries, which is like completely defeats the purpose, I think of tribal sovereignty, um, having, um, having weight there and having jurisdiction in that land, because, you know, one of the biggest arguments for tribal sovereignty is, um, being able to set the, um, air, water, land, uh, soil quality standards. And, um, you know, it was like one major step forward in affirming, um, tribal sovereignty precedents. And then this really strange step backwards that, um, has yet to be really figured out, I think. I've been away from Oklahoma for 20 years, I'd never heard of so many earthquakes there as I have since I've been away. A Stanford study found that spike is mainly due to the injection of wastewater produced during oil production. There you go. Moving on to your musical talents, you're a label mate of Woody Guthrie on Smithsonian Folkway Recordings, and you've said that the song, This Land is Your Land, falls flat. How so? I think people can read my article about it because uh, I go into it uh, pretty deeply, but um, and I wouldn't be able to cover it all here. But uh, mostly just because um, it's a song that tries really hard to include everyone, and I think that um, everyone to liberal folks has often still forgotten about Native people, you know, because our um, issues in this country are so fundamental that they just get looked over or brushed under the rug deliberately. Um, and I, that article that I wrote for Smithsonian Folklife magazine about, um, this land is whose land. It sort of talks about just how inadequate a lot of, um, liberal justice, social justice. Um, I mean, I'm talking about the song in particular, social justice anthems, I guess, but also just like the, the framework and the mindset tends to step over the conversation or step around the conversation about Native people because it is, um, it's just hard to get anywhere in terms of like imagining justice in America when America itself is founded on injustice against Native people. Right. I don't think everyone realizes that Native tribes hold this unique legal status in that they're sovereign governments and they conduct nation-to-nation relationships with our federal government. So whose land is this land that we call America? It's all Native land. Spoiler alert. You know, it always has been. Um, And, you know, how do we imagine, how do we imagine um, justice here with America, quote unquote, still standing? Um, It's kind of a big question that Native people have a lot of ideas about, you know, but um, we can't just plant a flag somewhere and claim that it is what we say it is, you know, especially, um, you know, in foreign soil that has complex civilizations and economies and relationships with this land already standing for since time immemorial, you know, like you can't just go in and plant a flag and just claim um, that you are the ruler of a place, you know, but that's exactly what America did. And so to a lot of native folks, this country is just like a complete farce, you know, it's a conspiracy, um, for lack of a better word. And, um, 
in order to begin to make up for that and begin to sort of um, even broach that subject, I think we have to have a serious conversation about sovereignty and sort of who who makes the rules or who calls the shots in indigenous land. You would think that it should be the indigenous people of the land doing that. You know, that's not to say that everyone has to leave because that's not um, realistic. Um, but I think that the first step toward any kind of healing relationship would be that native people get to decide what happens to this land because we know it the best. We come from it. Um, we're born of it. You're an advocate for the Land Back Movement, which is an initiative to return Native lands to their rightful caretakers. So what are your advocacy efforts with respect to land rights? I mean, I support um, everything that's going on on the federal um, court level and state courts, you know, in, in terms of taking that um, that avenue to get land back. I know that there's, um, you know, cases like the Oklahoma cases and... Um, in my home state with the, the five, the four um, Wabanaki tribes of Maine, recognized Wabanaki tribes of Maine um, in the 1980s, they got um, a land claim settlement act, very problematic results, but they did get uh, land back or the um, ability to purchase land back. Um, and then there's also the more grassroots um, avenues where um, there's been individuals or corporations, conservations, um, just signing over the deeds to Native tribes, whether that's to be taken into um, like official tribal uh, tribal land, made tribal land, which has its own set of um, legal rules, I guess. Yeah, so the more grassroots um, avenue for getting land back is um, when conservations or individual landholders um, just donate land back to tribes, um, whether that goes under actual tribal dur- jurisdiction or is just held um, in a nonprofit status or by an individual. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can go about that, but um, there's been a number of land back Examples of land back that um, have happened just in the last couple of years. Um, I have a list of them in front of me, so I can um, I can cite them. You know, the Oklahoma case was one through the Supreme Court um, in July of 2020. The Esalen tribe was able to reclaim 12,000 acres, um, a big ranch near Big Sur, California, and um, the. Town of Eureka also returns stewardship of a 280-acre Duluat Island to the Wyot tribe. Um, there was a church that gave some land back to the um, Wyandot Nation. And in Maine, just last month, I think, maybe it was this month, there was 735 acres um, returned to the Penobscot Nation uh, near the Penobscot um, Sacred Mountain, Katahdin, not Katahdin, in um, northern Maine. And so these are. This is a movement that's picking up a lot of steam. And um, personally, I'm involved in a couple of land rematriation projects, um, which is women-led, indigenous women-led land back um, initiatives, basically, um, and um, nonprofits, uh, land trust nonprofits, are sort of um, another way of collectively holding land in that way that I'm involved in. We're recording this interview in November, which is American Indian Heritage Month. 
Columbus Day, as it's named by the federal government, or Indigenous Peoples Day, as it's known in several states, was last month. And then Thanksgiving is this coming week. I attended Columbus Elementary School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, obviously named after the Italian explorer. It's since been renamed after a Mexican-American activist because the student body there now is half Hispanic. It seems more appropriate that school should have been named initially after a native instead of Columbus. And we know native people predate colonialism, yet... Native history, our holidays, the people we honor, they're all filtered through that lens of colonialism. And that seems like a really big problem, even today, in addressing what's wrong with this country. What do you think? Yeah, I um, I agree. There's a real cognitive dissonance um, there. And uh, I think a really good example that I often use is um, I you know, I like books, I like to read. So I go to bookstores um, and libraries. And often, I notice that um, the history section, American history, and the Indian or, you know, Native American history sections are on completely separate um, sides of the store, you know, in completely separate uh, locations, as if American history was not also Native American history and vice versa. You know, it's like, it gives you this option to read the censored version of history that might make you feel a little bit better. And then the, uh, the, um, yeah, the stuff that is extracted from that, the, the native history that's extracted that tells, you know, more of the shameful details of uh, white America and its predecessors. So in terms of representation and, you know, names of, uh, programs or schools or organizations. Um, I do feel like if we go there, I mean, like everything should have a native name, you know, we're in native land, everything does have a native name. Uh, you know, the trees have their rightful indigenous language names, the the waters, the riverways, you know, everything does. And it's, um, it's hard not to see, you know, from that framework, it's hard not to see everything constructed by America and written in English and whatnot as just sort of a, a weird veil of um, fakeness, you know, um, when you know that there's real history that's not being told, when you know that there are real names of places and landforms and animals that are not being spoken. But I will say that um, it's important to acknowledge that there are a lot of um, Mexican or Hispanic folks that are indigenous and, um, you know, definitely they can't be equated per se, but um I think it's really important to acknowledge that that is a reality because there's a lot of, you know, migration that has always happened across the imagined, you know, U.S.-Mexico border, the constructed border. And um, those migration patterns of humans as well as animals are being disrupted by this concept of a border that's supposed to keep, you know, imagined um enemies out, I guess, you know, and, um, and meanwhile, like it's, it's still indigenous peoples and indigenous animals and wildlife that have always crossed that so-called border. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to speak to that for a second, um, that I think it's important not to, um, necessarily draw a line, um, between native and Mexican or Latino, Latinx, um, ethnicities, 
um, as well as just since I'm on the topic, um, you know, there are a lot of biracial native folks and, um, mixed with all kinds of different identities, but one that gets erased a lot is, um, black native folks, um, because of strange ideas, um, on both ends of the spectrum, sort of that the one drop idea that if you're one drop of anything else, you can't be native anymore. And on the flip side, if you are black, you can't be anything else. Um, and I think, yeah, I just think it's important to sort of be aware of those dynamics. We seem to want to put people in neat and tidy boxes. Yes, yes. That's not how nature works. So let's talk about Black Native a little bit later, but let's explore Earth justice now. Your community embraces the concept of seven generations thinking. Explain how that manifests itself in terms of environmental justice. Seven generations thinking is um, embraced by a lot of different indigenous cultures. And it's just sort of the idea that you think seven generations ahead um, when you're making any kind of decision that will uh, impact the earth or the people or the animals, you know, in in, uh, indigenous frameworks, we consider that we're all related. So if you harm the water, you harm yourself. If you, you know, oppress the the plant life, um, you know, with... uh, I don't know, I think of Monsanto when I, when I say that, then you actually are making yourself less healthy and the rest of the animal kingdom, so to speak, less healthy. Um, so that interconnectedness and the, the um, relationality of all those things um, is, is really um, baked into the seven generations thinking. Um, in terms of protecting land and, um, you know, climate justice and, um, and whatnot, the, um, Indigenous people of the land protect 80% of the world's biodiversity. And we've been defending and protecting our the lands that we come from uh, since time immemorial, but particularly since facing colonialism, which is in itself an extractive industry. So for seven generations thinking, like we, we defend the land because we imagine, you know, seven generations down the line, will this, you know, uh, food source, <clears throat> this river still be here? Will it still be able to provide food for our um, our great 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 grandchildren? And so, you know, in the face of colonialism uh, and capitalism, right? Like so often, you'll see that dams or mills or um, other pollutive um, industries will ruin a waterway, you know, and will disrupt the natural um, flow of fish like salmon, for instance, you know, and um, inhibit salmon runs, which blocks the food source for native people. Like we, our indigenous thinking and framework would never allow something like that to pass because, you know, if you cut off the food source, then how are your great grandchildren going to eat? How are your, you know, how are you going to eat now? I guess is (laughs) the first question. But um, in terms of, you know, America, I think, I think, um, yeah, this country would do a great benefit to itself to start thinking seven generations down the line because capitalism has a very um, waste-intensive and pollutive legacy that it spreads. Though it hasn't really been widely adopted, the business model of the certified B Corporation 
aims to include the welfare of people and the planet on equal footing with profits. And that's exactly what we did at a solar energy company where I worked for the past four years as a marketer. And your assertion is that sustainability is the antithesis of capitalism. Native sovereignty is the enemy of industries that exploit Earth's resources. That's what you've also said. So, Expand on an idea of how we can create a better business model. I think there's a slight problem in in the question of like framing our understanding and our plans for the future around business models. I think um, the um, particularly the Democrats really want to be able to make um, the sustainable economy. Uh, still profitable and still expanding capitalism. And it's my belief that capitalism doesn't really have much of a, a role in um, saving the earth from climate catastrophe and from, you know, saving our lands and waters and um, relatives, animal relatives, plant relatives. I think that capitalism is just sort of inherently opposed to sustainability. And so um, that being said, you know, if we have to think about it in economic terms, which we often do to convince um, politicians or corporations or, you know, people who believe in capitalism, um, local economies, local um, local food sourcing is really important um, and local energy sourcing. The argument for native sovereignty as um, the solution to um, – climate change or, you know, a, a, um, an important, um, avenue for fighting climate change is that native sovereignty allegedly, at least, I mean, Oklahoma sort of raised some question marks for me, but native sovereignty allegedly is supposed to be able to, um, have binding legal power in setting environmental standards. Um, and so it would be a much more efficient way to hold corporations accountable for um, polluting and to, you know, set limitations or just completely bar certain corporations like um, Dakota Access Pipeline, for instance, would have been nice um, from polluting and extracting and um, doing sort of fossil fuel intensive activities. Yeah, as far as a business model goes, I think um, I think it's good. You know, the Ojibwe, um, I think it was White Earth Ojibwe passed the rights, the rights of Manuman or wild rice, um, which put um, wild rice, you know, it gave it inherent rights to um, exist, flourish, regenerate, evolve, and um, also the inherent rights to restoration, recovery, and preservation, which is incredible, you know, considering that what the... Um, the needs of wild rice are to grow is like clean water and, you know, an uninterrupted um, ecosystem. Right. And so that really like reframes sort of the ability of um, corporations to come in and do whatever they want, because if they have to, um, yeah, they have to respect those rights. And I think, and I know there was um, some other sort of rights of nature um, laws that have been passed globally that have been really cool to see. Um, and largely by indigenous leaders as well. On the subject of politics, President-elect Joe Biden is vetting New Mexico Congresswoman Deb Holland as a possible appointee as Secretary of the Interior. If chosen, she'd be the first Native Cabinet Secretary. 
And it's ironic that our current Secretary of the Interior is a former oil and energy industry lobbyist, basically the fox guarding the hen house. If Holland is selected, how do you imagine she'll advocate on behalf of the land, given how Native people in particular often live intimately with the land? So I think that there's inherent problems with um, the identity politics of sort of representation in the U.S. government. Um, I say that for a lot of reasons, but um, one example is that I think there's like a number of Native um, Congress people from Oklahoma, and most of them are Republicans, you know? So I think we can't necessarily assign values with ethnicities um, per se or, um, you know, tribal affiliation or whatever. But um, the Secretary of the Interior, obviously, that's where the Bureau of Indian Affairs is located. So that could be really important if she were... Um, she were in charge there, but I don't know. It, it's a hard question because um, we really can't assume anything just based on um, native folks's um, native identity. And I think that um, sort of to go back to what we started this conversation with that, you know, um, native folks fought against the Citizenship Act and the 1924 Native Citizenship Act because we saw it as just another another method to um, culturally genocide us and forcibly assimilate us. Um, we didn't want to be citizens of a nation that, you know, invented itself on top of us because we were already citizens of our own nations. So I think that um, while representation, I guess, you know, could be good in any um, place where it has previously not been, I don't know how much leeway Native folks really have to do much change um, from within the oppressive structure itself. Yeah. Your activism is at the intersection in some ways of Black people and Native people, as we referenced earlier. Black voters in Georgia and Native voters in Arizona did a lot of the heavy lifting to turn those two states blue in the service of electing Biden as our next president. What conclusions do you draw from those two examples? The electoral process, the you know, national elections are really frustrating to me for so many reasons. And I think it's really important to um, understand because of the context of Native people in this country and our citizenship and our voting rights, which um, at least in Maine, we didn't get voting rights until the late 60s, I believe. Um, and and it may be across the nation as well. But um, it's the framing of that, of, um, you know, sort of what people's responsibilities are to the um, oppressive colony uh, just needs to be taken into account. Um, you know, Native people do not owe America anything. And so the fact that um, the Native folks in Arizona pulled so much weight in turning the state blue is like impressive, but also just like, and I think this probably this frustration might go for um, the black community as well, but just like, what has this nation given us to deserve us saving it from itself? again, you know, and, um, really the answer is this nation has hardly given us anything, you know, and still has all of these systems set up to oppress us. Um, I will also say, you know, I'm not black, but I stand for the, uh, liberation of all people and, um, indigenous sovereignty 
black liberation and um, BIPOC liberation as well. I read somewhere that Native people on the whole actually voted for Trump um, more than they voted for Biden. Um, And for me personally, you know, I voted, uh, I really did not want to vote for Joe Biden, but I did that. And um, it was really hard for me to see a difference between Trump and Biden in most respects, including that they're both sexual predators and that they're both um, very cozy with extractive industry and, um, wrote capitalists and they both love Republicans, (laughs) you know? So (laughs) all of these politicians are still colonial, uh, figures, um, because they uphold the colonial structure. Wilma Mankiller, she was the first woman elected as principal chief of the Cherokee nation. And she had a deep and lasting friendship with feminist Gloria Steinem. And Steinem kept a vigil at Mankiller's bedside in Oklahoma as the chief Mankiller lay dying of cancer about 10 years ago. Native people in general seem to have great reverence for women. What lessons can we learn from Native women to help us create a more equitable way of life as it relates to feminist and gender issues. Yeah. So I read recently, I know there's a a movie out about this, but um, the suffrage movement, suffragette movement actually was inspired by Haudenosaunee women um, and the government structure, the longhouse government structure of the Haudenosaunee people. Um, There was a, a woman that was trying to make a documentary about the suffragette movement and did. Um, and she was doing her research and ended up tracing all the way back to, um, basically white women in early colonial period, um, observing that native women had political power and, um, and often like, you know, more political power than men, uh, in the Haudenosaunee culture and, um, sort of, it was like a mirror to their society, to white society, and it made white women sort of consider, well, why why don't I have any existence in the law at all? Why don't I have any existence in my my, uh, culture and, you know, influencing decision making and whatnot? Um, So I think that that is to say that um, Western or American culture has already learned a lot from Native people. And, you know, I think it's kind of um, it's more or less known that the um, Constitution and the uh, you know the idea of democracy, the way it is in America, at least the ideal of it, um, is also inspired by um, Six Nations culture. So that all being said, you know our our traditions um, are very um, equitable, and um, you know a lot of us recognize um gender fluidity and you know multiple genders more than just the gender binary that europe has come up with um i think that um you know for i'll speak to my culture personally um women and men had very uh sort of important and equal roles although they were determined roles um generally speaking you know women had um decision making power about, um, sort of the internal and the life sustaining, um, practices, the life sustaining things. So like when we talk about seven generations thinking, like that was really like women's wisdom, um, that is informing that, you know, thinking about the children of the children of the children and men had sort of, um, the like 
puppet politician roles, right? So they would end the warrior roles often. So they would um, do the sort of diplomatic stuff, but they wouldn't be able to make decisions on their own or sort of like have their own, um, you know, individualistic um, role because they were just doing what the women told them to. <laughs> and, um, you know, that all being said, they're, um, we also recognized um, gender fluidity and people who didn't um, identify as, you know, either man or woman in the way we might think about it now. Um, there were places and specific roles and often elevated roles in society for those people as well. So I think a lot can and should be learned from indigenous cultures, um, politically speaking and just socially speaking and um, in the way of, um, I think that our sort of anti-colonial or pre, pre-white people um, <laughs> cultures are um, really um, non-hierarchical. Yeah, and um, sort of we, we let people tell us we let our, our people tell us, our children tell us and show us who they are as opposed to telling them who they are and who they have to be. I like that. Yeah. On the subject of racial justice, people may say, my ancestors never attacked Native people. They never owned slaves. And while that's certainly true for some of us, it's also true that past injustices have not to this day, been addressed as the oppressive structures and those attitudes still remain? Um, yeah, I think it's important sort of to, to really think about the foundation of this country and the wrongs that were done, even if they weren't done by your ancestors. If you're white in this country, those wrongs were committed explicitly and expressly for white people to flourish and prosper in this land. There are a lot of uh, more recently immigrated folks um, who are white, who especially feel sort of, they feel offended by being roped into that, um, that guilt or something or that blame. And I think just the context of, you know, regardless of when you got here, you're still living in indigenous land, you are still occupiers of indigenous land, and you're still benefiting from the structures and the systems built on top of indigenous people, on top of the dispossession and genocide, genocide of indigenous people by white settler, colonial, uh, colonial settlers. You can't really just shrug off the history when you're still sitting on top of its spoils, you know, and you're still creating history. You are building upon that legacy, resting on and, and building upon that legacy um, that you inherit as a white person here. Um, I think it's important um, to note that colonialism is worldwide. And um, there are a lot of folks who immigrated here um, as refugees from colonialism um, in one way or another. And I think that's um, respect for those people and those stories is really important. Um, and I think that sort of another argument for, um, for indigenous leadership in our land, indigenous sovereignty is um, to um, to let us figure out how to heal um, from colonialism together and what that means for all of the people that are here now. I think it's important when we're talking about who's a settler and who's not a settler, um, that people who were um, human trafficked from their land and colonized on foreign soil are in no way, shape, or form settlers and never could be. 
Right, by definition. Yes. <laughs> we know that human DNA is 99.9% similar, and we also know now that racism is a social construct, yet it persists, that stereotyping, that perceived inferiority. But labeling racism as such often seems to shut down what could turn into a productive discussion. And if we're to work toward an egalitarian society, should we move away from calling out racism in people and institutions and instead focus on helping people understand that the real problem might just be that we need to dismantle the hierarchy of ranking people and conferring privilege, which is baked into our system still today? I think that racism, it's really important to be able to call racism for what it is and call it out when it happens. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's been said to be a radioactive term, but it is also radioactive to be shot at for the color of your skin or put in jail for no reason, just because you are um, of a certain race. So I think being able to name that is really crucial. But I also think that um, America at large really doesn't understand the legacy and the history of racism that it was invented specifically to justify the dispossession of native or indigenous people from their land or um, enslaved people from their own bodies, you know, and from their own agency. And so, you know, race is used as this, um, this tool in within capitalism, right. And it, always has been. And I think that, um, this country is such a, um, ball of propaganda for capitalism. And so it's really hard to sort of poke through that and, you know, lift the veil on like the, the relationship between capitalism, colonialism and racism, because they are all mutually informing, um, and mutually benefiting, um, elements of sort of the same monster. So we really can't, we can't get rid of that term because it really does have a lot of meaning um, within the racial capitalist um, globalized world that we live in, um, which, you know, as an indigenous person, I feel that I can really see the root of um, the way that colonialism has really caused all of these problems of that, you know, America is very slowly uh, trying to confront today. Capitalism is a really important element to the conversation around racism in, uh, in itself. What do you hope are people's takeaway from our conversation today? First and foremost, uh, the only reparation for land is land. Uh, when we're talking about reconciliation and reparations and whatnot, uh, with Native people in particular, the only thing that can make up for land is land and sovereignty. Um, and, uh, I think that I would hope that people, um, sort of recognize their, um, the collective ignorance about, um, the political relationship between the United States and native people, because, um, you know, our treaties that have been ignored, um, for centuries are standing and binding, um, federal law, you know, and uh, America tends to break and twist its own laws in order to um, usurp the power of Native people and the sovereignty of Native people time and time again. And I hope that a takeaway is that by actually 
recognizing this sovereignty and supporting it, um, we can first and foremost um, fight climate change most effectively. And I think that, um, you know, tribal, tribal sovereignty is maybe a scary term to a lot of non-Native people, um, but I hope that um, this conversation might convince people that it shouldn't be. Um, it's just a, it's a matter of respect. And honestly, it's the most fundamental thing that we can do to combat both um, racial inequality and climate um, catastrophe in our world is to recognize and respect the sovereignty of indigenous people and to follow our leadership in protecting the earth that we know most intimately. Molly Obamsawin is a contributor to Smithsonian Folklife Magazine and the Boston Globe. Links to her articles appear in the show notes. Do you have a compelling story? Or do you know someone I should interview? Message me through social media. Follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation. That way you'll never miss a new episode. Tell a friend to listen, too. That's how we grow our audience and continue podcasting. It's a story as old as the flag and the